What is up, everybody? Welcome to the Of Like Minds video podcast. We have a super special guest today and a dear friend of mine, Mr. Arnell Calvario. Arnell, thank you so much for giving us your time today, sir. Good to be here. Super proud of you, Kevin. So happy to support. <laughs> I appreciate it so much. Arnell, just kind of getting right into it. And I just want to talk a little bit about um, your childhood and uh, what it was like growing up. And you kind of grew up during the time that hip hop was birthed. So if you can just talk about like what childhood was like and what it was like growing up during that era. Uh, so I grew up in Harbor City, uh, which is like right in between Torrance, Wilmington, Carson, um, San Pedro. So it was really cool. It's like a melting pot, melting pot of just so many different community members. And yeah, I grew up in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. So, <laughs> so my childhood literally was like, you know, um, going to the park with rolled out linoleum and cardboard and, you know, ghetto blaster out there and people literally <laughs> rocking the ciphers and battles and stuff. And it was really fun and exciting. I was really shy though. So at the time I was more like on the outside of the ciphers or the outside of the circles looking in, mm. uh, super fanboy. Uh, but I, you know, I grew up it's like feeling the energy, watching, you know, popping, locking, breaking. There were both B-boys and B-girls uh, in my neighborhoods. And then at the family parties, my uh, older cousins were poppers. Uh, they did like they did like popping, waving, boogaloo, a little bit of tutting. Uh, so I love that. And then my other cousins were also into party dancing, like the social dances uh, when I got to high school. Um, so I got exposed to and immersed in like, all of the of that golden era of um, of hip hop that was super exciting, super raw, um, and then uh, and but I again I was really shy as a kid, uh, so I would only dance like in my room or in the garage, you know, <laughs> um, and and then it wasn't until like high school that you know I started like you know getting into dance publicly, whether it's at talent shows or at school dances and whatnot. So yeah, well, I mean. One, just having such like, especially with the culture and it just being everywhere in your life, maybe if we can just talk about like what was maybe one of the first influences or one of the biggest influences, especially at that young of an age, was it the cousins? Like, did it start at the household? Was it getting out and being in the community and seeing that? Where were those first initial um, influences? Well, um, my first influences were in person and also uh, on TV. So in person were my older cousins for like popping and locking and party social dance, like uh, hip hop choreography and whatnot. Mm. Um, and then I also, uh, even though I didn't know they were called the lockers back in the day, I used to watch the lockers on Soul Train. Uh -huh. So uh, Soul Train, like my Saturday morning was always Saturday morning cartoons and then Soul Train right after. You know? <laughs> oh my God. Um, so, and then, you know, later on in like middle school and high school, that's when MTV was really big. So then you started watching all the music videos and started getting inspired by the dancers on music videos. So um, it was a little bit of a mixture of both, like family parties in person and, you know, at the parks and community centers and stuff. And then also the other inspirations that you would see on TV. Um, I would also go to Radiotron back in the day. I wasn't old enough to be there, but I would just, you know, take the bus and head over there and sneak in. <laughs> Um, so I got to see like, you know, Air Force crew and you know, members mm. of Rocksteady crew and uh, the electric boogaloos would be sometimes at these events. Uh, and then, yeah, so it was, I didn't know the names at the time because I was young. 
Uh, but I got to feel the energy of it. And later on, looking back, I'm like, oh, damn, that was Don Campbell or that was Greg Campbellock Jr. Or, you know what I mean? Those are the electric boogaloos, Mr. Wiggles. Like before I knew his name, he was my favorite. Like visually, Mr. Yeah. Wiggles was like the one, you know? Um, so it's, those are like all those greats were like a part of my childhood. But it wasn't until like reflecting on back later that I was like, oh, that was you know, this pioneer, and that was that pioneer, and, you know, all that stuff, yeah. I mean, <laughs> one, I got to know, you talking about how you were, you know, a shy kid, and, and I was the same growing up as well, and I just want to know, like, how you even had the courage to just dive into this, this, mm-hmm. this culture, being a shy kid, like, yeah. did anything help ease that just, like, or did you just kind of jump into it? I think what's interesting is like when you compare, so the hip hop era, the whole feel of hip hop was peace, love, and unity. Mm -hmm. And it was about creating something by the community for the community. So the Mm -hmm. fundamental spirit was very welcoming. And when you look at, it's different what was going on on the East Coast and what was going on on the West Coast. Because the East Coast was definitely, I mean, we all also know like hip hop was created by our black brothers and sisters. Mm -hmm. And then of course, um, our Puerto Rican brothers and sisters had contributions as well. And you know, on the East Coast, it very much was that. Mm -hmm. But on the West Coast, it was very mixed and there were a lot lot of Filipinos up in the mix. So you felt very welcome. So even though maybe I wasn't like jumping in the ciphers or in it, I felt very a part of it. Like the people in the circles, the DJ, the graph artists that were just like bombing, like in the back, whether they were bombing in their, <laughs> in their books or they were like, you know, making these amazing pieces on walls, like, um, or you were on the outside of the circles, just giving good energy. Everyone felt like you were a part of the culture. You were welcomed in. And so even though I wasn't the performer part of me or the freestyle part of me, wasn't uh, confident enough yet. I, I, was I felt connected you know what I mean Mm. um and it felt cool it was what what hip-hop set out to do was to basically give power to the sense of crew right so uh because the gang violence was at an all-time high Mm. so the whole fundamental thing was a sense of belonging and and amplifying the the concept of crew to be so dope that that's what you wanted to be a part of you know Mm. what I mean you wanted to be a part of a crew so the spirit of hip hop at that time, um, even though I was shy, I felt very welcomed. You know, that I felt very like invited. You know what I mean? And uh, a very much a part of, which is like actually the fundamental building block mm-hmm. for why I even created Kaba Modern and why mm-hmm. it was like the foundation of my belief system as to the most important part of our dance community to begin with. So. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and you talked about, you know, going back to playing off of you saying that you were this shy kid and you were kind of yeah. doing things more so like at home or in your room. <laughs> what was it maybe like? Like, how often did you do those things? And two, like, you know, what did your family think of it? They had to have at some point noticed that, okay, like, Arnell's just dancing all the time. Like, what was that mm-hmm. reaction like? Well, they didn't actually know I was dancing in my room. I think they thought I was de- playing with my G.I. Joes because I was <laughs> playing with my G.I. Joes and my Transformers and whatnot. You know? <laughs> um, they didn't really even know that I loved dance so much until mm. I was older and I was dancing at the family parties. Mm. And then, you know, I, all the cousins would dance for the, you know, they throw quarters, you know, on the dance floor. <laughs> like, dance, dance. They make you perform. <laughs> they make you perform. Uh, so, so I didn't really even, like, I literally didn't even dance until, like, 
really be the beginning of middle school for that for those quarters you know what i mean and yeah um i did dance though in a um filipino cultural dance okay. company that my aunt um directed and choreographed so she she was like um one of the main contributors for a big uh dance company called kaimana nanglahi that's mm -hmm. in uh really really big at ucla and you know in the upper la area yes and she said all all my cousins are gonna be dancing this too so we we didn't have a choice all my cousins learned cultural dances which is so dope mm. because i felt like i had a connection to my heritage too as a mm. filipino and so um so it's not like my parents couldn't imagine me dancing because they already yeah. it was already an expectation that i was doing these cultural dances yeah. it's just they didn't know i was doing hip-hop mm. you know until and literally until junior high when you know, I would kind of practice a little bit for the school dances, uh -huh. uh, but especially in high school, because I was in a key club and in key club, we started like to rep our key club. We were competing at talent shows and stuff. Mm. So, well, yeah. if you can talk a little bit about dance kind of playing a role while growing up and being in school, so middle school, high school, um, mm -hmm. at least during the time when I was growing up and, and dancing and teaching, it, it, it may have been looked at differently, but if you can just talk about what it was like to be to be known as a dancer or being involved in dance at school, yeah. what it was like in that environment. Um, so when I was in high school, um, there was no such thing as like all male. You know how they have the Channel <laughs> Island. Yeah, they, yeah, yeah. At a lot of high schools, they have like all male dance. It was just literally like if you wanted to perform, you could maybe put together a group for a talent show or or in terms of like formal uh, organization, there was cheerleading or um, song, you know? And at that time too, it was very like, just um, there weren't really guys dancing <laughs> as much, you know what I mean? In terms of organized, you know? Um, but it was so cool to be able to dance that you really just prepared, you know, for the school dances to kind of show off. Mm. And the, the cool thing about dance for me is, um, it actually helped me find my voice because, you know, prior to, like I said, I was always shy. And also obviously, you know, now I'm, I'm, I'm an out gay man, you know, but I was really confused about my sexuality. I mean, I didn't really, I kind of probably denied it for a, such a long time. Yeah. Uh, so when I danced though, I felt like I had a, I had a voice to express myself, you know? Mm -hmm. And it was the beginning of me finding my confidence because it's in baby steps. So for me to even believe I was a dancer in junior high, no, in high school, I was at a school dance and the best dancers in school were these group of black girls that I just, they're like the nicest ever, but they were just so badass. And um, I was in school dance and they said, hey boy, you can dance, come dance with us. <laughs> Just that little validation. That's why, like I, I always say, never underestimate, you know, the power of an encouraging word, because them just calling me a dancer in that moment helped unlock me seeing it myself as a true dancer. Because before that, I saw myself as a dance fan. You know what I mean? I saw I was like outside of the circle, looking in, support the dancers. Only, you know, I would dance for myself, but I wouldn't really feel like I deserved to be called a dancer. But her validating me as that said, oh, oh my God, I am a dancer. 
And even when, even though I was still shy, so like for my dan high school dance group, I was the choreographer. I okay. even didn't like, yeah, I never considered myself a leader. I didn't want to be a leader. Uh, even in like formal positions, I always liked being vice president or like supporting somebody else because I was what? still building building my confidence you know okay, I okay. more like comfortable in the supportive role mm -hmm. um so that was the baby steps first you know n not seeing i feeling i was cool enough to be a dancer then being cool enough to be a dancer but just wanting to be support role <laughs> <laughs> right and then going to uci mm -hmm. and now being oh i should add another context i'm the oldest of four siblings mm -hmm. so i never had an older brother or older sister yeah. to like say hey i believe in you hey you, you can do this you can do that you know yeah um so when i was a freshman at uci i finally now had i joined the filipino club and now i had all these ates and kuyas mm. and people saying they believe i believe in you you're so talented yeah you know what i mean like um welcome to kababayan you know and yeah and I finally, that, that is the turning point is like when I finally had mentors and kuyas and ates telling me that um, to believe in myself and to create mm -hmm. something, feel like I could create something, uh, that changed me. That, that's when I found my voice. And I, uh, I started, um, I changed from the, on the, being on the outside of the circle and now being uh, in the inside of the circle now. Yeah, I think that's so powerful how you said that how, how dance helped you find a voice when it's an art form that you don't have to say anything to express yourself. And I just think that yeah. that resonates with me so much. And what I want to know, and you kind of alluded to it already, Arno, but what was that point for you where you were like, I'm going to pursue higher education and you ultimately ended up going to UC Irvine. So if you can just mm -hmm. talk about what that, that, that was like, obviously growing up in a Filipino household, there are those high expectations. <laughs> if you maybe talk about that dynamic and yeah. you know, the reason for you ultimately choosing to pursue higher education. Yeah, it's interesting growing up because when I, okay, so growing up, I always knew dance was going to be some form in my life because I loved it from such a young age. You know, I just didn't know if it was going to be fanboy or it was going to be like <laughs> myself. Mm -hmm. But I also knew that I was going to be a health professional at a young age because I looked up to my grandfather on my mom's side so much and he was a surgeon general in the Philippines army. Uh, so very prestigious at home. And I would, we would go to the Philippines every five years. Wow. And so I just look up to him, you know, so much. Mm -hmm. uh, and all, all my aunties and uncles on my mom's side were all health professionals. And, you know, I had like a lot of admiration for them. Uh, so I, I knew I was going to be a health professional from, that was always a part of me. Like I could always visualize, like, I'm going to be taking care of patients. I'm going to be working with families, you know, but I didn't know what form it would take, you know. So that's what I work hard for in high school was I was going to go to college for sure. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? Um, I didn't know what I was going to be, you know what I mean? But I knew I was going to be a health professional of some sort, you know? Uh, so yeah, UCI was, uh, UCLA and UCI were my top choices mm -hmm. in high school. Uh, so I geared for both of those mm -hmm. and, and um, I ended up going to UCI. So mm -hmm. yeah. And you decided, was it biology, right? Yeah, I was a biology major. Looking back, it was the incorrect major for me. <laughs> Why do you uh, say that? Uh, because the science, the sciences, the the part of the sciences I like are um, anything I can relate to the human experience. So like anatomy, physiology, 
uh, psychology, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. Not so much biochem, organic <laughs> chemistry, you know what I mean? Like, which is like such a bulk. There's so much, um, there's so much of the sciences that is, is that part. Uh, I really like the clinical part a lot, mm. even as, a, as young. So I started out the gate at UCI really strong, like mm -hmm. really, really amazing grades. But my interest started like really falling off when it got more into those science-y parts of it that mm. didn't really, where I couldn't feel like I had a connection to, to really helping human. I couldn't visualize how this is helping me become a better physician, you know? Mm. Uh, well, how did falling you, off, yeah. How did, you, how did you even navigate through those courses when you experienced the fallout well before you were gonna graduate? Like, how did you even navigate through that? It was hard, you know, you, uh, my, my years at UCI were the most exciting and the most life-changing and also the most struggle, both. Because uh, I always tell people I majored in bio and Cabo Modern. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Equally. <laughs> so um, Cabo Modern was just vital and critical uh, mm. for me to develop myself as a leader, as an artist, uh, and as a person. Um, just confidence-wise, it just was a game changer, you know? And Cabo Bayan, the Filipino club as well. Mm -hmm. um, but um, yeah, I started not getting great grades at all. Like by my junior year, I was on academic probation actually. Mm -hmm. And I was struggling to find my way. Um, <clears throat> and I actually had a counselor who, for the like, you know, positive reinforcement can be life-changing, but so can negative reinforcement. Mm -hmm. So I had a counselor who actually told me, I don't think you have what it takes to, to finish this degree. Like, I don't think you have what it takes. What did that uh, do? Without even you? asking me about why my grades led to this or, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. just not a great counselor to begin with because, yeah. you know, I'm purely making these calls on numbers and not mm -hmm. really, you know what I mean? When I look at back at it now. Um, and I was so impressionable. I said, okay, I'm going to drop out. I mean, I was at the end of my junior year and I dropped out of bio. And I started over with psych, not, not even thinking practically that I was so close to graduating. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I should just finish it out and turn it around. So I started taking um, psychology classes and I loved it. Um, and then I uh, started volunteering at hospitals and I found out, oh, I actually, and then I went on a medical mission too, to the Philippines. Whoa. And, um, and the medical mission I applied for and I, I was chosen and I went there and I did cataract surgeries, delivered babies, tumor resections, uh, and passed out medications in five different provinces in the Philippines for two weeks straight, like, wow. you know, uh, 14 days straight. Um, and I realized that I didn't like the procedural part of doing these surgeries, mm -hmm. even though it was interesting in the beginning, but it became repetitive and almost mm. in non-human because, you know, it's just procedure after procedure. Uh, I found myself drawn to the recovery room. I, I like the therapeutic process. Mm. And so what I got out of that medical mission is that I think I'm meant to be like a therapist of some sort, you know? Mm. Uh, so when I came back, I, I volunteered at the rehab department and I was like, oh my God, I think it's physical therapy, you know? Mm. Uh, so I uh, went back to my counselor and I said, I want to go back to bio and I want to finish because I want to apply to master's program. Now that I know what I want to do, 
I just want to finish this degree and, and get over to doing my prereqs and go for a master's yeah. uh, in physical therapy. It says too late. You know, we, we can't let you back in. There's no spaces and you're, you know, there's where we can't open it back for you. It's too late. And I was devastated because I was, all my, my friends are graduating. Uh, I got bad counsel from this counselor. Mm-hmm. I, I went to go see another counselor and she said, I believe in you. I told her my whole story. So I believe in you. You can do it. What you need to do is you need to add every class as if you were a bio major by ad card. And basically ask each professor to let you in. Yeah. And then get good grades so that I can authorize you to come back. And then you can graduate on time with your friends. And I did that. I added each class, seven classes in a row, begged professors to let me be have a spot in their class, aced all those classes, ended up graduating just in time. I I mean, I was definitely a five-year grad. Mm -hmm. Um, um, but I ended up finishing it like right in the nick of time um, by pure determination, you know? Um, and I already knew at that point, I'm like, I'm not taking the MCATs, I'm not going to medical school, but mm-hmm. I think I'm meant for something in the therapy field. Um, and so once I had my degree, I applied for a job at Children's Hospital LA. Mm-hmm. It was a physical therapy, occupational therapy aid position where you're helping both departments. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it was there that I discovered that my true calling was occupational therapy Mm. and everything worked out as it was supposed to be because I took prerequisites. I aced all my prerequisites and then I went for the top program in the country, which is USC Mm -hmm. therapy. And, um, and I wrote this long personal statement about that journey of, um, finding your true calling and how, when you do, that's when you perform at your true capability mm-hmm. and it matched my grades. And they, they basically told me they took me based on my personal statement. And um, I got into the top program in the country and then I aced it. I was president of USC's OT program. Oh my God. <laughs> and then they actually, uh, when I graduated, um, they opened up the doctorate program exactly when I graduated. And so they said they want me in that inaugural class. Oh, wow. And I ended up uh, negotiating my, um, my tuition. So I said, I'll do it if you pay for half my tuition. Wow. <laughs> That's amazing. And they said, I'll, we'll pay for half your tuition if you do it on this topic, your doctorate prop on this topic. And I said, yeah, that's what I wanted to do it on anyway. So the universe and God like provides when you're true to who you are, where you follow um, a calling that's like beyond others' expectations and beyond a um, archaic expectation that you may have placed upon yourself that no longer serves you, you know? Um, So yeah, super blessed and like, yeah, that whole journey was really crazy. So, I mean, I went from like, like, you know, the excitement of Cabo Modern to like, oh, I may not graduate and yeah. I might have just wasted my, all my parents' money they invested on me, you know? Yeah. Uh, to, 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 by pure determination, just making it happen and then coming out on the other end in the end, you know? Absolutely. And, and, and we're going to get into a little bit deeper into, you know, your, your, your tenure at, at USC. But just kind of going back to, you know, 
while you're figuring this out at yeah. UCI and you did found Cabo Modern, if you could just talk about what was the inspiration and motivation behind creating that space? So the sense of belonging uh, that I had from hip hop culture in general, and also when I did the talent, I put my group together for uh, Key Club for the talent shows, mm -hmm. that excitement of working together towards a common goal to rep your school was just so, oh, that like that adrenaline rush was like none other. Um, just, I liked, I think that I always liked the collaborative process, the challenges of it and the excitement of it, you know? So um, I joined the Filipino club right away to learn because I love the cultural dance. It's, I grew up doing it. Mm -hmm. um, but because I grew up in hip hop culture that included so many Pinoys and Pinays, mm -hmm. uh, when it was called the Filipino American Culture Night, I was like, well, the Ameri Filipino American part of that is hip hop for me, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. So, uh, you know, I asked the president if, I, if we could have that in the culture night, just a small section. Because there was the rural dance suite, the Igra dance suite, Maria Clara, and the Muslim. So the four main styles, dance suites. And then, of course, there were skits and commercials and whatnot. Um, but yeah, I was like, there should be hip hop in there, too, to, mm -hmm. for, to capture the American experience. And, um, you know, the president mocked me and said, yeah, you should just create your own. But I didn't catch the sarcasm, so I ended up just creating it. <laughs> you know? And it ended up becoming the Kababayan modern dance suites. So the traditional dances and the modern take or the modern dances, not technically like contemporary or modern, mm -hmm. but more like modern as the adjective, like this is the modern styles, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and they called us Kaba Modern for short because our name was just too long. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I constructed Kaba Modern from the beginning um, as a bridge between the foundation style, so popping, mm -hmm. locking, breaking, um, married with the energy of party dancing. Mm -hmm. Because those are different like eras, you know, of, yes. of dance. And, uh, but I, I wanted to combine what I looked up to with what I did, because what I looked up to was popping, locking, breaking. What I did when I finally danced in public was party dancing. You know what I mean? Hip hop mm -hmm. choreography. That was like when I finally had courage to dance. So I wanted all of it to be like the identity of Cabo Modern. Um, but the foundation, we were never meant to be a, a crew because we weren't going to battle other crews that were mm -hmm. existing at the time. And we weren't a dance company because we were literally um, practicing in parking garages. We were practicing in the parking lot right behind Cross Cultural Center. That was our mm -hmm. first spot. Um, so we kind of, we're like, we're a dance family. That's, that's what we are. We're a dance family. That's, that's our identity. You know, when people ask you, what are you? We're a dance family, you know? Yeah. And that was the culture at that time. Cause after Cabo Modern was created, all the Filipino clubs the very next year started having a modern section. Barcada mm. modern, Samahang modern, Pac mm -hmm. modern. Right. And we all identified ourselves as dance families. Like that was the culture that we, these were collectives of dancers that wanted a sense of belonging that wanted to express for each other, you know? Um, so super exciting, super hype. Um, yeah, and it just kind of exploded from there. Like the community was formed after that, yeah. And what about, what were the rehearsals like in terms of 
knowing at, at, at this point, I feel like the, the dance families were more focused on the foundation of yeah. where hip hop came from, you know, as opposed to now we kind of see a little bit more um, people expressing their own movement. Um, yeah. But just talking a little bit about, you know, what it was like, just a, a, a typical rehearsal mm-hmm. and really diving into these foundational trainings that, you know, we don't see as much anymore. If you can share yeah. um, any thoughts on that. So one thing to keep in mind is like, uh, none of the hip hop styles were in studios at all. Mm-hmm. So in order, the only way you learn anything is you had to learn it from your homie. You had to learn it from, you know, someone at the park. <laughs> so these modern group, these, these dance families were basically um, teaching each other what they had learned from their communities. Mm-hmm. And um, very much, there were no mirrors. So mm-hmm. you had to teach each other and the way you clean is through each other. So mm-hmm. when you perform, it's, um, it's the concept also of interdependence versus independence, right? Mm-hmm. Where you, just like in the Philippines, in the province, if someone doesn't have enough rice, it's okay. Your neighbor is, if they find out, they're just going to share with you. You know, everyone relies on each other to, for survival and mm-hmm. to, to make it and be happy. Same thing with these dance groups. You relied on each other, one, to teach each other, and you relied on each other to like perfect it too. So you clean each other, you're outside, there's no mirrors if you wanna clean. You know, you, you trust the leader that their eyes are gonna like be able to let you know what you need to do. And you have to think about not just yourself, because there are no mirrors, you're looking at what everyone else is doing while you're doing what you're doing. So there's yeah. a connection, yeah. a connectedness that's like, so deep you know and that's why like even you know in the beginning there was no competitions so you're really working all year long for that one performance for culture night yeah and you you you're repping for each other so because your family members are going to watch you yeah. and you want um but it's more than just yourself it's like together you know we have to work together with everyone so that teamwork that like the true kababayan spirit of you know we are fellow, we're, we're fellowship and we're working together for this uh, product is like, was very much the impetus for all these groups. Um, of course, you know, performing once a year wasn't enough, which is why <laughs> later on, like mm-hmm. when car show promoters and club promoters are like, hey, we want you to perform here or hey, we have a dance competition at our car show. We jumped at those opportunities. They're like, oh, we get to perform more than once a year. This is dope, mm-hmm. let's do it. You know? Yeah. Um, and then you started preparing more sets and then these comp, these faux comp, these like small competitions that weren't thrown by us in the beginning were, you know, kind of there, you know? Um, so, but eventually then you had the competition circuit be created and, and then that also t- took it another level up in terms of like what the culture kind of felt like, because now you're like, Ooh, I have to get, now we have to get competition ready. You know? Yeah. And I was just going to ask you that, that, you know, when you started at Kaba initially, like you had said, the environments are different from where it is now. I mean, you're literally dancing in parking lots on the streets, on campus. You're not in a studio with mirrors. Um, also that reliance on your, your family members and, and your teammates to look as good as you can. So many different variables are changing and evolving. And a big one is, now you have competitions to look forward to. Did that ever change the rehearsal space? Did that change the culture of the team? Uh, what did you kind of notice um, as those opportunities started to arise? In the beginning, when we was just the culture nights, we were everyone was fine with just practicing outside with no mirrors. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? 
Um, and, and it was raw and fun. And was it clean? Like looking back at those like <laughs> VHS tapes or whatever. <laughs> um, but maybe not as clean, but it had a rawness to it that was just like so, it was basically, you know, hip hop foundation, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? You, you had to vibe off the energy, which was so fun, you know? Um, but yeah, when um, the first competition was vibe because I was complaining about these car shows and not that they were bad, but they just weren't enough yeah. for what I envisioned for what we want. I wanted like the PCN experience, but yeah. at a dance event, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, by judged by dancers and leaders we respect, you know, versus random promoters. So my roommate needed a, uh, an event and I wanted a competition. And so that's how Vibe was created, just from a, a, a conversation between my roommates. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Vibe was the very first opportunity for people to be like, oh, wow, we have an actual stage and we have yeah. an actual audience. And I think once we had that, um, we started... Um, hip hop dancers and these dance families were still not embraced by the universities. So we did not have even spaces on universities. So you would just hope that somebody on the team is a dance major. So for us, <laughs> hope someone from the dance team, you know, one of our dancers was a dance major. And then we would like use their access to get into the, one of the dance mm-hmm. studios. <laughs> we would have to use, we would make the routines and then use the hour or two hours we have mirrors to clean ourselves mm-hmm. and then that's it yes that's it like you know what i mean you have very limited so it was cool it was cool to be able to like see the jump um but i think it wasn't until there were like more dance competitions that and it started to become a lot more seen in terms of like value and mm-hmm. also uh the enormity of it as audiences started growing bigger at these events that dance studios are now like huh, maybe we should let them teach at our studios. You know what I mean? Yeah. And once like we started infiltrating the dance studios, um, that's when I think teams started like being able to clean more and there were more competitions um, to prepare for. So people were now starting to use studio spaces, whether they rent it or, um, you know, whatnot. And, and also now that um, we were in the studios, um, even the North Hollywood studios like Millennium and, mm-hmm. um, and The Edge, <laughs> yeah. Debbie Reynolds. Yeah. Uh, people were like also seeing those as like, oh, that's probably where I want to go next after I do the college experience. If I want to be a professional dancer in the industry, yeah. I'm going to start like taking class over there. So things were starting to grow and change um, pretty much like once we started going into the studios more. Absolutely. And, and you obviously, you know, helping create vibe and, and kind of one, when was the first year of vibe? And two, if you can talk a little bit about the evolution of, you know, from the first, very first vibe to where, where it's, where it is now and seeing how big and, and we're, you know, at Seagerstrom now, like, you know, like just seeing that evolution. Yeah. Vibe was created in 1995. <sighs> yeah. So this year was actually supposed to be the 25th anniversary, which was yep. like super sad because, yeah we were like wow i mean 2020 really was going to be so many anniversaries for yeah a lot yeah. of competitions because fusion i think was also going to be turning that was going to be their 20th anniversary and oh wow yeah a lot of competitions were having 20th and 25th anniversaries because that was the era you know 20 25 years ago was when the competition started popping up you know yeah 
Um, but the two most coveted ones out of all the competitions are Vibe and Body Rock. Yep. Right? Mm -hmm. And the reason why that is is because Vibe and Body Rock were created by dancers. Yes. You know what I mean? And so it had the intention, uh, just how it's shaped and how it's run is in the minds of how do we serve the dancers well, you know? And so people all around the world, even though there's so many competitions, the, the ultimate, the most revered are, are those two ones. Because obviously Body Rock was created by Anna, mm -hmm. uh, who obviously is another, like su such an amazing leader, amazing good soul, one of my closest friends. Yes, um, absolutely. And yeah, Vibe was created, you know, by Kaba Modern, not by, by me necessarily, you know, we were brainstorming us, my roommate, Joseph. Mm -hmm. um, but there were Kaba Modern leaders involved that were in that fraternity that helped shape it for years and years and years and years and yeah. it always had a very um community feel to it yeah <laughs> it's, it's just amazing to see like you know an idea that you had so long ago and that you are obviously obviously collaborated with um you know some close friends and to see where it's taken not only just you know you but even seeing like our community um, and one now kind of getting back to, you know, when you decided to pursue uh, that doctorate and you went to USC, one, how the hell did you even balance all of this, Arnell? And, <laughs> and two, obviously you had a couple of years in between. Um, so maybe just taking us about like what else that you were kind of doing in, in between graduating from UC Irvine and then ultimately going to USC and then pursuing that doctorate. Well, first of all, like, um, yeah, I think it's important for people to take the time they need uh, to figure out what they want to do post-grad. Um, I, I think a lot, of, a lot of my friends who right out of college went right into careers or went right into graduate programs, they were expected to. Yeah. Um, ended up being like, you know, having other, you know, mental health issues, you know, depression, just, just different issues, different health issues, because they didn't end up doing what they really love. They ended up doing what they were expected to do. Um, when I graduated from college um, and I, you know, I went, I started that OTA job, PTOT job. I had like two and a half years to really make sure you know, mm. that this is what I wanted to do. And that's what I always recommend to people. It's, it's your, you spend most of your waking hours of your life working. Yeah. <laughs> so it's worth taking the time to invest in making sure it's something that you're going to want to spend your life doing, right? Yeah. Because if you're happy in what you do, then you're happy in, in everything else, how you treat yourself, how you treat others, right? Mm. So I think it's so key. Whenever people graduate and they're, and they're like, I don't know what I want to do. I'm like, it's okay. You know, you're like... <laughs> You're in your early 20s. That's the 20s are about exploration and discovery. Yeah, it, those are the times that you're supposed to shadow different people to see if you know when it may be a career is something to be a spark for you. Um, ask questions. You know, um, watch documentaries. You know, just just go out there and and ask questions, explore, discover. Um, I always tell people take all the time you need to find something you love, and then when you do love it, do the work that it needs to that it requires to excel, you know? And so for me, taking that two and a half years was critical because if I rushed, I probably would have been a physical therapist and that would have been fine, but it wouldn't have been the immense joy I have now where I freaking, I not only love my job, I, I envisioned retiring in it, 
You know what mm. I mean? I, I love my job every day. I'm so grateful for my career choice. And I and it's so it's broad enough that I even see myself I can pivot at any time. Yeah. Uh, because the philosophy of this field is aligned so much with what I think God created me to do. Mm. So, you know, I just I'm so great glad that I took the time versus rushing because of expectations or because of timelines. You know? Um, and then I also am of the belief that we're not all also not one thing. You know what I mean? We're, um, I always say the same quote because it's a quote I believe in. Like <laughs> my, one of my golden rules, it's like, or my um, thought is, is that um, we're all like a brilliant mosaic of many extraordinary parts. Mm. So we're not just one thing. We're a combination of a lot of amazing things. Mm. So we should never make our life all one thing, right? Mm. So going to occupational therapy school, if all I, I made myself was just an occupational therapy student and I ignore all the other parts of me that can contribute to my health and well-being, yeah. I would burn out. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, like most students, like they work out or they run or they do, they write or, you know what I mean? They read maybe, you know, for me, it's always been dance. You know, dance has always been a part of me. It brings me joy. It brings me balance. And so I don't think I could have gotten through my master's and my doctorate if I didn't have some form of dance in my life. And I don't think I could do my dance either if I didn't fulfill this part of me that always wanted to be a health professional. Um, I didn't follow the path that someone told me I should be. I actually figured out the right combination of things that makes mm extraordinary right that makes my path unique yeah so i couldn't i'm not one or the other when people ask me what's your career I'll, i'm like oh yeah i'm i'm a dance educator and i and i'm an occupational therapist and they're like oh what's your day job i'm like i'm an occupational therapist and i'm a dance educator yeah. there, there's no day job there's no main career the combination of both is like what my career is you know mm. uh, and if i were to pick one over the other it would be to deny um, what I think God created me to be, you know what I mean? God created me to be many different things, you know? And of course we have our other roles too. Like I'm a son, I'm a brother, I'm an mm -hmm. uncle, you know, I'm, I'm a partner, you know, I'm a friend, I'm a mentor, I'm a mentee, you know, there are many things. Um, but in terms of like, um, my career, I'm definitely, it's, it's equal parts dance and health professional. I think it's, so important that that is heard and for the viewers and whoever's tuning in just just hearing that or no i think is is amazing i think getting i'm guilty of this too i think getting so in love with dance and kind of having the blinders to almost not seeing other things and being like i'm a dancer and that's what i'm going to do and there's nothing wrong with that but you saying you know that there's so many dancers and we have so many friends that they could be so many things if they wanted to be and it's more so just like being open to that to that option and i just think that it just it's so it's so important that you said that and i just hope that you know whoever's tuning in can really just like let that resonate um i mean when we think about the pandemic right brother like right okay so like if if a person only saw themselves only as an entertaining a, a dance entertainer right that's all they saw themselves as of course, they're going to be depressed in this moment of the pandemic when entertainment and industry got shut down mm -hmm. for months, right? Yeah. Um, 
But if they saw themselves as a dance entertainer and something else and maybe something else, because they are, they're, they're a combination. They have many talents. They have mm -hmm. many interests. If they saw themselves as a whole person, then yeah, maybe having one part of you shut down won't be as devastating. Right. Right. Absolutely. So, yeah. So I think that's the problem is I think when anyone life is unpredictable, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? And so when you, limit yourself to one identity to only one and you only cultivate one part of yourself you are denying your extraordinary brilliance and your other pathways to being healthy throughout your life journey you know what i mean um when you're when you embrace the uh, ability to be many different things um you can move through life through the ebbs and flows of life mm -hmm. um, more gracefully you know what i mean so I always encourage people that that's why I like I'm really big into even mission statement writing because when we write our personal mission statements, we start to identify what are those parts, you know what I mean? What are those parts that uh, of who I am, you know? Yeah. Um, and then you start to realize, yeah, I guess I have a foundation uh, principle or these values, but I'm actually more than these things. The values maybe brings it together, but I am more than one thing, you know? Yeah. I really think about it, I'm more than one thing. And, um, and then you're going to be okay for that. Absolutely. And, and you are definitely um, an extraordinary in that sense. And I've taken some of those classes and, and during my tenure at um, Beyond Culture Rock LA and getting reconnected with you and kind of seeing that and being like, man, like Arnaud really knows his stuff. If, you know, especially during this time and especially for, for artists that are maybe, you know, trying to figure out how to have that awareness of, okay, what else can I provide that will also be moving for me as well, rather than just getting a job for the sake of getting a job. Um, maybe if you can offer some, what would you say to someone who's maybe looking for, like, how, how do they self-assess? How does one even start to figure out what they want to do? If you have any um, suggestions or tips or words of encouragement. Yeah, I think um, I, that's why I really think, like, what's interesting is, like, uh, during this time, like, we, a lot of people were really depressed because of the ability, the uh, limit limited ability to have freedom to move about wherever we want, right? Mm -hmm. And so the movement part of ourselves was very stifled. But um, I think a lot of people started like settling into um, being okay with it when they realized this is an opportunity to unlock our minds though, mm -hmm. and our spirits, right? Yeah. And to put thought into like, what, what is my mission in life? You know, what are my, what's my, what are my values? what's my biography right now? You know, maybe I can look back at that now and like start to really think about who I, who am I in this moment? Um, and then now as we're being awoken up by so many issues like Black Lives Matter or mm -hmm. the Me Too movement or LGBTQIA liberation, mm -hmm. um, we're all different. <laughs> we're all different from now, from who we were at January, 2020, yeah. right? And it's such a good thing though, yes. because what it is, is it's calling us to like, look at what needs to be healed. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, what areas we can be proud of and also what areas we can grow in, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think right now in this moment, it's, yeah, there are a lot of things that suck. <laughs> there are, you know, <laughs> I mean? that are challenging and there's a lot of loss. Um, but we also have, a lot of opportunity to rebuild, to grow, to have meaningful growth. 
uh, to redefine or or maybe even just solidify who we are and who we want to be. Yeah. Um, and, and that's a, such a good thing because when things return to quote unquote normal, <laughs> you know, yeah. whenever we get back to being free to move about as we wish, um, the hope is that we're, we are going to do better and be better, you know, and maybe yes. we're going to be more connected to the things we truly love, you know, uh, maybe we're going to, the things that we, there are things that I sat on for years and years and years, like my leadership course that I've been wanting to do, but I just been so distracted by my service to others that I never even got to like now think about my passion projects that I want to, you know, they're just kind of been dusty in the back shelf for maybe like 15 years to, yeah. to be honest, you know, uh, I got to dust those off and, you know, I had to say like, Oh, well, you know, I don't have any of my, tra all my traveling gigs, all 15 of them are all canceled. So, <laughs> you know, what other things uh, have I always wanted to do that I think, you know, now I have the time to do it. Yeah. And to be honest, like doing that program and, and paying attention to things that, um, that I am, I think I, I've the skills that I've developed that I haven't even paused enough to like notice um, mm -hmm. has completely birthed or expanded um, the things I already do, you know, in a meaningful way. Yeah. I love that. I love that. I love that. And, you know, another thing too, Arnaz, I, I feel, I feel so much for, for those that are graduating high school and going to college and, and, you know, that experience kind of virtual graduation of high school. And then for those that are pursuing higher education, not really having the full experience, you know, with social distancing and probably not even being able to live on campus. So I think, just kind of knowing that and and there's a lot of uncertainty in what has gone in today's you know youth that are kind of growing up but i want to go back to you and, and you finishing your doctorate at usc in 2002 and if you can talk a little bit about navigating postgrad accumulating all this knowledge accumulating all of these you know, accolades and, and things and you can do anything you can be adaptable you can kind of put on different hats what was it like initially navigating that postgrad life Oh my gosh. So, <laughs> so 2000, I graduated my master's in 2001 and then I graduated my doctorates in 2002. Cool. So I had enough like elective credits to graduate my doctorates in like one year. Wow. So dope. But 2001 to 2002 was the hardest year of my life because I was a new grad. So first year occupational therapist mm -hmm. and still trying to find your way and your confidence as a therapist while doing my doctorate program and still dancing. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, so time, time wise, it was, it was so crazy balancing all my time, you know, um, that was very challenging. Um, if looking back, I would have definitely kept the dance. I would, I, I love the, the I'm, I don't have any regrets about doing the uh, doctorate program, but I probably would have just worked part-time or per diem, you know what I mean? Mm. That was when I was actually stretched to my full limits and I probably needed to experience that to know where I don't function well. Mm. That's where I hit my, my absolute workload limit. And I knew at that time, like, I can't live like this for the rest of my life. So whenever I hit a threshold, even close to that feeling of that one year, I already know I need to start shaving things off. Yeah. yeah. Um, but 2002 to 2003, however, you know, now I got my doctorate under my belt. 
Um, and I had actually quit Culture Shock LA because philosophically, mm -hmm. I just wanted something uh, different. And Culture Shock LA uh, in the early 2000s was dope, but it was very much industry more than mm -hmm. community. But in 2003, the executive director of Culture Shock LA got pregnant and moved to New York and offered me the executive director position. Yeah. And that's when I said, man, everything I grew up in from being a Boy Scout to Key Club to um, helping create this community, you know, with Cabo Modern, like, I think I'm ready to, to lead a nonprofit. Wow. Culture Shock LA, you know? Yeah. And I can combine everything I love, which is community service, hip hop culture, education, and still perform with like my, the people I love, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and the part of me that did competitions, I outgrew that. I didn't want to do competitions anymore. Mm. So this is perfect for me. Like everything in its divine timing happened. Um, and now I was a second year occupational therapist so I felt more like confident so yeah. I did have a, a tough year before but the first the year at the second year after that was like now I was in my sweet spot mm. because I had all the excitement of I had a dream team of directors because I got to choose who I wanted to be directors with me okay um, and I got to build Culture Shack LA from scratch and really return it to its outreach and education route mm. and also train as true hip-hop artists with you know, like basically building not only the movement, but the knowledge, you know? Um, so that was like exciting, 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 fun, fun, fun times. Everything was stimulating because I was growing as an occupational therapist and then I was growing as a, a dance leader too. Yeah. And it's been like that ever since. I mean, I was on the team <laughs> a few years ago and, it, and it's in terms of still giving back and you're talking about still being in touch with those roots and giving back to the community and education and true education. Yeah. Um, not as people, not as just dancers, but also as people. And uh, yeah. I've always appreciated that for you. The and culture is like just such good souls, like people who are really dope dancers, but have a sense of, of wanting to, to do what we do for not just ourselves, for a cause bigger than ourselves. Mm. So you're just around all these good humans. And as you grow through life, you have also peer support. It's just so dope. Yeah. You know? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, was there ever a point, Arnell, where in terms of, because you're, we're always going to be a dancer, right? You're always, it's going to live with us forever. Was yeah. there ever that point where you stopped in terms of performing or being on stage per se. I, I know you still yeah. uh, actively teach and you're yeah. very much in the thick of things, but in terms of like, I am performing, I am getting ready for this set. I'm going through a specific regimen. When was that, when did that kind of stop for you? So like your career, you can be in a career, but your relationship to that career is always going to change. Mm. Does that makes sense. Yeah. So with occupational therapy, like I started off in the hospital setting because I wanted to be around all different diagnoses. I wanted to learn and have all these other therapists around me. But, you know, after working at Children's Hospital LA from my eight years to a therapist, new therapist, after working there for 11 years, I was starting to get bummed out by the oncology kiddos that were dying. And I already knew like my soul probably couldn't take that long term. Yeah. So I actually changed to school district life where I have summers off and I have winter breaks and I'm still making mm. a difference but no one's dying, you know what I mean? And <laughs> I, I, I had a strong interest in the autistic population, so kids with autism. So I, that was such a good transition for me, you know? Yeah. And that's the same thing with dance too. Like, yeah, there was a season I, I loved 
to compete at talent shows in high school. Then in college, yeah, now that there's all these dance competitions, I did love the excitement of dance competitions, you know? Yeah. Um, the, the spirit of dance competitions was unique too, because people are like, oh, why would anyone want to do like choreographed dances that everyone looks the same? It's not about necessarily the product. It was about the experience of working together on a common goal mm -hmm. and then doing well for each other. That's the high. Yeah. That's why competitions were exciting for me. Or because like, this is my family, I'm repping my family. And you know, we're gonna do so well for each other. And that's exciting when you succeed, you know? Um, but yeah, then, you know, I didn't, and also one thing too, is like, I've never been a front and center performer, you know? Like, I've always like, just like the experience of sharing something with people. So even though, yeah, my relationship to dance changed. So first, you know, comp, like talent shows, then competitions. And I was like, I don't feel like competing anymore, but I still want to tell stories through benefit shows, you know, mm. um, school assemblies, you know, community performances. So I still had like that performance part of me that, that evolved from competition to now still performing with a purpose um, or for education. Uh, and then, yeah, then a part of me at, at some point was like, you know what, like, I don't like performing as much anymore. I just like to perform for special occasions now. Mm. Uh, now I'm more like, I love the educational aspect of it. So I like teaching workshops. Uh, I like encouraging other, like molding other educators and other leaders now. Yeah. Um, or being a part of their journey and mentoring people. Like I enjoy that more. Um, and when I dance now, it's interesting because I went through a phase of loving choreo choreographed art and then I came full circle to now being what, like that kid in my room freestyling. <laughs> That's where I am now too. I love freestyling now. Yeah. I don't like battling. I've never been a battler, but I love ciphers. I love jams. I love house parties, you know? Yeah. I still love that energy. So I've come full circle all the way around in terms of dance to the freedom. But I don't think I'll ever re be on the outside looking in. I'll now forever be, you know, a part of the circle you know, um, because I, I know I belong now. Yeah. I love that. I absolutely love that. And, and you are definitely a purist in terms of being an educator and a teacher. And that just that job is so selfless and so giving. Um, is there maybe some, is there maybe a certain thing that stands out to the job of, you know, a lot of people are like, well, being a teacher, it's so much of giving and, and maybe you can talk about like, some of the things that are satisfying or make it like, this is why I do this. Like what exactly like is so fulfilling for you being an educator and teacher? And that's just a part of what you do, but what about that specifically? I think um, when it comes to education, I think it's teaching things that, um, that you feel it's your unique contribution to the world, right? So I think if I forced myself to be like a dance choreography teacher, I probably wouldn't like it as much because there's so many people that are good at it right now. Right. But for me, I love teaching like Roots Before Branches, which is like the history, because I know I'm one of the few dance educators out there who lived through it. Mm -hmm. you know what I mean, who Very lived important. through all the eras from the 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, who's been a part of the the, you know, the street dance and club style world and <laughs> dancing in the parks and to 
dancing at these competitions and being a part of birth, the birth of this community. Yeah. I know I have something unique, like a unique story to share. So I love Roots Before Branches because I think that's like something that I can uniquely offer the world, you know? And also same thing with my leadership tools for the dance leader. I know that um, that's also a, a unique skill set that I, I've gained from my mentors and also from my mistakes and my successes as a leader um, that I can help other young leaders who are aspiring to do something for their, who they serve as well. So I think what it, what it is in terms of like teaching, it's teaching things that you're interested in and also that you uniquely can offer the world. That's when it keeps it exciting and fresh. Um, I think we burn out when we're like, kind of just teaching what's already out there. And we're like, I don't know, like there's just so much of this already and I'm doing the same thing. It's more like taking the time to find your unique offering and then fully cult nourishing that. Mm. So it's always fresh and exciting for you. And when it's fresh and exciting for you, the people you serve feed off of that energy, you know? So, and I can also tell when people do it for money and not for the joy of it. You can yeah. just, you know, because to be an educator, you have to really be in, a, to be a good educator, you have to be really interested in um, the experience of your students. Absolutely. And honestly, right. every time it's on camera, off camera, behind the scenes, every time that I talk to dance about you, I, I feel like even when I text you or we message, I feel <laughs> like I can, I can feel that beaming energy of just being excited to be like, all right, Kevin, I'm about to, sh I'm about to teach you something. And so you're definitely, obviously, like you said, someone has lived through it and you've experienced it and it's, it's been your life. Um, recently, earlier this year, um, I know that we got rid of the term urban and I, one, I wanted to know your thoughts on just yeah. just that term, first of all. And then yeah. two, uh, you know, what the impact was and the power of not taking it back, but just really like, hey, like this isn't something to be taken and, and, and branched out as something else, but just yeah. the relationship of, you know, urban and, and finally removing it and, and calling it what it is. Yeah, so... So like what we mentioned earlier, like the foundation of this community was definitely hip hop for sure. You know what I mean? Because it was 1992 and that's like still the golden age of like party dancing and um, or hip hop choreography, hip hop freestyle. Um, that's like elite force and mop tops paving the way for all of us, you know, for that movement. Yeah. And all of us just taking that and running with it. You know, that was the spirit. Um, and so the root of our community is definitely hip hop, you know, but, um, around 2005, um, that was, you know, we already had lots of competitions and, um, that's the, that was the birth of like social media. That's when mm -hmm. like, you know, first my first friendster, then MySpace, <laughs> uh, then, uh, Facebook and then YouTube, right? Mm -hmm. And so what ended up happening is when you have this explosion of having access to each other, um, you also have an explosion of teams. Because that was also when now a zillion teams started being birthed. Mm -hmm. Like our community was already growing fast, but there was an explosion and they were yeah. getting younger. And now you also had the high school teams, not just the college teams. You had the high school teams, yeah. a lot of all male competition teams. There are a lot of community teams. Um, and so this explosion was like exciting, but I feel like the growth also, um, there wasn't enough 
mentorship and education to match the expansion, the rate of expansion, you know? So, and also they were getting younger. So a lot of people um, weren't even born during that era when, you know, uh, of the, they weren't even born in the seventies or the eighties or even yeah. the nineties, some of them, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, so, um, so there was the good thing is the cool thing was I, I did like that now people were drawing inspirations from different art forms, you know what yeah. I mean? Like contemporary, you know, true modern dance, mm -hmm. um, even like club styles, you know, house, um, locking, you know, all these different art forms, whacking, uh, Vogue. And so um, this, the, the presentation was starting to look different as well. You know what I mean? And the yeah. choreographed um, expressions were looking different because people were pulling from whatever inspired them. And that's a cool thing. But I don't think people also were feeding themselves with the knowledge to even know the art forms that they're drawing inspiration from, right? They didn't necessarily know this art form is called this, these are the foundations, this is the vocabulary, this is the history, this is the essence of these art forms. Um, they were just taking drawing inspiration and then trying to create something that was like unique movement, which was still cool. I love it. I loved it. Um, but when you look at our, um, our, the landscape, you started to seeing like the dance competition was starting to look different, you know? Mm. Um, it didn't necessarily, there were teams that literally, I would look at them and like they have no hip hop foundation at all. Like the hip hop is not their foundation. You know what I mean? They're like drawing their styles from different art forms that are also dope. But there are teams that were showing up at competitions are like, wow, there's not a single, I don't see a, that much hip hop in that piece at all. Yeah. And they're so welcome because these are dance competitions, not hip hop dance competitions. Yeah. You know, vibe and, and fusion. There were dance competitions. They were not necessarily labeled uh, hip hop competitions, especially at that point anymore. Yeah. So, um, so as people were traveling around the world, like Sean Evaristo and Mike Song, mm -hmm. uh, and they were interfacing with the mob, you know, people like Buddha Stretch and Link and all these other amazing uh, uh, progressors and pioneers. Mm -hmm. um, There's a lot of call into question of like what your community is doing is not hip hop or that's watered down hip hop or yeah. you know whatever. And so there was a term urban dance that we did not create. That was not a, uh, something that was fabricated by California. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. That was a term that was already existent in, in the studios. We didn't know why, but they were there. And dance events all across the world were, had, were calling their, their events also urban dance or urban dance camp. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. um, so um, because people of that generation, like Shauna Veristo, Mike Song, you know, um, Lal Baniga, are so respectful of hip hop culture. When people from that culture were saying like, what you're doing is not hip hop or questioning it. They're like, well, maybe we should use the urban dance thing because it's already out there and we can not disrespect the purity of what hip hop is and hip hop isn't yeah. and find this new term that maybe it's a little bit broader. You know what I mean? Um, because yeah, there was contemporary mixed in. Like when you look at Mari, like he, you know, not you know, Mari Madrid. Like mm -hmm. she has a lot of contemporary influence, and it's amazing. Like yes. you could be hitting in there, hip hop in there for sure. But there's also an amazing contemporary side to her, you know. Yeah. Or even like Chris Martin, there is some contemporary mixed with b boying, and then mm -hmm. you know what I mean. It's like he's so brilliant in what he does. It's clearly like has many different influences. Yeah. And so a lot of people from through the late 2000s 
um, all the way up until now, we're starting to use this term as a safer lane to kind of sit in. Um, and that's kind of, again, one of the, the great things about like, the Black Lives Matter movement is it was now exposed that urban music was used to basically not give credit to Black music mm. or even hip hop music. They were using urban as an, a replacement term for, yeah. for that, that genre. And that's the same thing what happened in the studios. We found out that the studios were using urban dance because they didn't feel comfortable um, putting hip hop in their studios. You know, yeah. we had no idea that that is the origin of it. And so that is why uh, in June, just, you know, I had conversations with Monsell Durden, who's like another amazing, inspirational dance educator. Um, I met him through a mutual friend and he's from the Mop Tops as well. Mm. And he had explained to me, you know, the, the negative aspects of urban dance. Yeah. Um, yeah, we got together quickly within weeks, got a bunch of people together, you know, Keone and Mari, Bam Martin, <laughs> you know, Lalbaniga, um, Sora, uh, Sean Maristo, of course, um, Mike, Anthony, um, all of them basically came together. They invited me as a guest as well. And we talked about, Lando was in there too, uh, June mm. Tomato. <laughs> yeah. Um, we also asked Tony Czar what his thoughts were as well. And we all decided, you know what, for ourselves, we need to make a stance. So we, we had a solidarity statement. We posted it on Instagram at the same time in June mm -hmm. and basically said, we will no longer be using urban dance. Yes. And that's absolutely there. When you know better, you do better, you know? Mm. And I'm so proud of that because now we're returning it back to where it started, which is honoring art forms for what they really are. Absolutely. And um, supporting this generation who wants to learn, you know, this generation actually wants to learn the history, which is so exciting. Mm -hmm. they, they ask for it. They want to know it. They're, they're activated. You know, they want to know the root. And that's super cool. So right now, like we're just saying like, you know, people who, who felt, you know, comfortable with the urban dance theme, it's like, no, keep doing what you do. Like your style of choreography or your style is uniquely yours. But within your choreography or within your freestyle, mention what the building blocks are, what art forms mm. are the building blocks of your choreography, yeah. of, you, of your style, I mean, of your uh, freestyle. And then just take the one minute at the beginning of your class or the one minute at the beginning of your rehearsal to let your dancers know, hey, I'm teaching an advanced dance choreography class and my style of this class is, is built on the building blocks of hip hop, um, house and crump, <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Then one, you're giving credit to where the, like who created those art forms. And you're also leading your students to be able to like, hey, if I want to master his choreography, I need to study those art forms so that I could like smash when he teaches his choreography. You know Absolutely. What I mean? And we're, we're, we're really staying in that lane of appreciation now versus appropriation. Absolutely. And you hit it right on the head, Arnold, and, you know, talking about, you know, labeling things for what they are. And you're, you're constantly working, not just, you know, for you, but for, for the community, for others. And if you can just talk a little bit about 
uh, the day-to-day and kind of uh, what you've been up to, what you're currently working on, especially, you know, amidst COVID and being in this pandemic, there's a lot of adjustments and pivots we've had to make. So just kind of taking us through uh, what you've been currently up to. Yeah. So, um, you know, I've been doing my occupational therapy job. I work for the school district. So uh, I'm off during the summers, which has been a blessing. So during this summer, um, usually I go the comfortable route, which is I work it's optional, but I work summer school. Um, and then, and I don't necessarily enjoy it. That's something I fell into. <laughs> it pays well, you know, it's, it's guaranteed work during the summer. So I usually do summer school in July, but um, we had no, so I decided I didn't want to work summer school this because the virtual therapies have been challenging. And last year pivoting into virtual was so challenging for me that I needed a summer off but I didn't also have my summer gigs that I always do. I usually travel a lot for my mm. teaching gigs yeah. and teaching competitions during the summer. Yeah. Uh, so um, yeah, I launched my leadership tools for the dance leader. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I basically had leaders from all the, over the country apply for this program. Yeah. And I ran four cohorts, you know, and I named them Alpha, Beta, Delta, and Gamma. Mm-hmm. And they ha- I had leaders from New Zealand, Australia, Philippines, Singapore, Indonesia, India, uh, China, Canada, Mexico, uh, Trinidad, you know, it's like people from all over the world that wanted to take this program to further develop their leadership skills so they could serve their communities. And that was one of the most rewarding, um, uh, amazingly enjoyable experiences I've had in my entire dance career. And something I'll probably be doing now for moving forward because I see now um, the necessity for leaders, especially young leaders coming up to be supported Mm -hmm. uh, in in finding their unique offerings to the world and also uh, understanding their areas for growth and understanding their strengths, you know, so that when they build their leadership uh, teams, they can know what to look out for, you know, Um, super rewarding, super exciting. I freaking love it. And again, it's one of those things that I feel like God universe, you know, gave me this opportunity and I went for it and, and I earned literally um, five times the amount I would earn working summer school. Mm. And I just finally shed it. I knew it for a long time. I didn't want to work summer school anymore, Yeah. You know, but I was afraid to let it go because I was like, I want to have a job for sure. Now I'm like, no, I need to trust in, I have a unique offering to the world and I just need to package it well. And then that that can be so much more fruitful. Um, so yeah, I'm grateful um, that I had something to pivot to. And this summer I saw a lot of other people doing it as well for their own unique offerings. Like Sora has an amazing program. Mm-hmm. Donna Arista has an amazing program. Larkin and Chris have an amazing program. Yeah. Andy J, you know, like all these people started like really thinking about what what is my unique offering to the world and how can I package it in a way that it serves other well, and mm-hmm. we're all thriving. And so I also want to let people know that the, the path of a dancer is multi. It's, it's not one thing. There, there is the tour life. There is the industry life. But um, this pandemic has really opened people's eyes um, to the um, stability and lucrative option of being an educator. Because if you were an educator always, you didn't have to give up your your job as an educator. You just had to turn it virtual and you could Mm -hmm. still succeed. 
Yeah. You know? And it's a viable pathway for people. If you want, you know, education is, is a viable pathway for dancers. If that's your genius, you know, if that's your, your true, what you enjoy. So um, that's what's really cool about dance. There's so many aspects, even like this, having a podcast. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I know dance is always going to be a part of your life, Kevin, because I saw you as a very young child, <laughs> how lit you were oh. um, on that stage, that in some form, that experience is going to lead somewhere. You know what I mean? That lifetime experience of performer to, you know, you are a leader as well to being a, an adult company member uh, to be a dance educator yourself and now having your own podcast it's all it's all connected you know um through dance right so yeah well i appreciate that especially coming from you it uh it means the world arnell and you know just kind of taking everything and culminating all of your experiences arnell i mean you growing and growing up literally at the birth of hip-hop and playing such an integral role and you even at the you know early age of being in college and starting spaces because you felt it was important to give back and to create more spaces for other people to enjoy um, and taking your education further, even up to the doctorate level and yeah. navigating through the wildness of post-grad and just hitting me now, like 2001, 2002, like that was, that was the year 9-11 happened. Like there's a lot of uncertainty uh, in the country and there was so many things and you getting to where you're at now and being so connected and so integral in our community and having all such a, a rich, you know, experience in terms of life outside of the dance studio, not just in it, most importantly, outside the dance studio. Arno, what, what would you tell to your 13-year-old self? Oh, man, my 13-year-old self. Um, I would tell myself that being different is such a great thing. Like, don't be scared of who you are. And even though you don't have all the answers, you're, you have a very special place on this, on this earth and, and you will find your way. I, I would tell my 13 year old self, because I, at that time I was really scared of who I was. I was really um, afraid I wasn't enough and I wasn't really sure what I was going to offer the world. You know? So I would just say you have, you are, you are worthy, your space, you, your place in the world matters, you know, and, um, and you'll figure it out, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Man, Arnell, it's, um, it's always a pleasure. And I, and I've been saying this a lot recently, like energy matches energy and just, just talking to you. Um, I just feel uplifted and I feel a little more motivated or inspired, you know, to continue to do uh, great things. And that's why I love connecting with you and talking to you. So first, I just want to say thank you for making time to just share this wealth of knowledge that you've accumulated in your life. And hopefully at some point, yeah, uh, we can reconnect and get back on the podcast and see how things are going and just, you know, talk a little bit more and dive into some other things. But I just want to say thank you for giving us your time and just sharing your narrative and, um, you know, hopefully putting so many other people on as well. Yeah, man. Well, first of all, you know that I'm so proud of you and um, you've always had a gift and um, I've seen you like have spikes. It's always like when you believed in your gift that you had the spikes, you know what I mean? In terms of like, like creating something or joining a new team, you know what I mean? It's yeah. like whenever you believed in yourself. So it makes my heart so happy to 
you find your voice here because um, I even love the name of this podcast. <laughs> it, it's so great, you know, because it's really like, you know, a black mind. So bringing minds together to yeah. create a positive difference. And that's a part of your genius as well. So of course, I'm going to be here because I'm proud of you. I believe in you. Um, and I think you're, you're the type of person who's just going to continue to pass, pay that forward as well, you know? Um, so I love you, man. And, um, and I, I'm excited to see where this goes and yeah, I, I'm already a different person <laughs> and you're already a different person than you were in January, 2020, right? Very much, very much. Yeah. So, it's, but it's a good thing. So in 2021, I feel like we're just going to be better. Mm. We are. This has been a, a huge test, but, um, you know, mm-hmm. everything comes, you know, it's up and downs and we're going to get there. We're going to get there. And yep. hopefully at that point we can reconnect and, you know, who knows, things will be different. Things could be very much the same, but we're going to reconnect yeah. and have a follow-up. But again, thank you so much, Arnell. I have so much love and respect and, and just, I look up to you and I just want to say thank you again. And I'm looking forward to the next time. My pleasure, brother. Appreciate it.